Well, good morning, New Life Church. Great to be with you today. As we continue our worship, can I ask you please to turn to two passages, to Revelation chapter 3, as well as 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So as you know, we're going through the series, Letters to Seven Churches, and these are Letters that are written to seven local churches in the first three books of Revelation. Last week we looked at the the fifth letter, the letter to Sardis in Revelation chapter 3 verse 1 to 6. We saw Christ's assessment in that letter that although Sardis had a reputation for being alive, it was in fact a, a dead church. And Christ's last appeal to the church in Sardis was to examine herself to see if she was, in fact, in the faith. And they were to wake up, and they were to repent, and turn back to Christ. And today I I wanted to spend some more time fleshing out this truth. I feel it is way too important for us to speed through these very important lessons that the Lord has been teaching us as a church. So today we're going to look at a church that had a completely opposite reputation to the one that Sardis had. Remember, Sardis had the reputation for being a dead church. And today we're going to look at the Thessalonian church, which had a reputation for being a living church. And as in many ways, is an exemplary church that we would do well to, to imitate. So let's read Revelation 1, chapter 3. Um, from verse 1 to 6, and then we're going to read First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 to 10. Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, who is Silas, and Timothy To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. 
For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can pray to a God who is alive, a God who is real, a God who has removed us from darkness into his marvelous light. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel, Lord, that, that saved us from our, from our sins. We thank you for the gospel that was preached to us, that came to us in power and in the Holy Spirit. We thank you for those that were faithful in sharing the gospel with us with, with full conviction. We thank you for the change that it has brought in us. Lord, today as we come before your word, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see, Lord, our duties as believers to be actively worshiping you. Lord, I do pray that you would help us, Lord, to see the, the difference between a, a dead church and a living church. I thank you for the example of the Thessalonian church. Thank you for this wonderful reputation that they had and that they will always be remembered for throughout eternity, recorded in your word. Lord, I pray this morning as we examine our own selves, as we examine the state of our church, Lord, that we would not be falling short. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that is known as the living church, as the church new life. Lord, we pray if there are people that need to be saved today, Father, that your Spirit would do the work in their hearts and bring them to the point of repentance. Father, we do love you this morning. We want to acknowledge your, your rule over us. We pray that your perfect will be done in what we think and in how we respond. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So like every believer, a church is one of two things. It's either active or it is inactive. It's either dead or it is alive. And Paul writes to this congregation to commend them for their faithfulness in Thessalonians. They were abounding in the work of the Lord. They were doing what they knew was right and were serving God in a, in a pure conscience. And the Thessalonian church was, in all aspects, a, a living church. But keep in mind, abounding in the work of the Lord is one step away from abandoning the work because of complacency, because of nominal faith. And when we evaluate our church, and that is what we've been doing the last few weeks, we are actually evaluating the, the individuals who make up our church, who make up any church. And it has been said before, the local church is only as strong as its members. 
It is only as faithful as its members. So as we consider this exemplary church, I want to ask one question. What type of believer are, are you? Are you active or inactive? Are you dead or alive? Of course, all of us will probably respond by saying, yes, I'm alive. So let me ask more of a revealing question this morning. If everyone in this church was just like you, what type of church would this be? So please consider this question as we examine the characteristics of a, of a living church. If everyone in this church was just like you, what type of church would this be? So my first point this morning is the greeting. We see the greeting in chapter 1, verse 1. The epistle is written to the, the church of the Thessalonians. Um, Thessalonica was, at this time, the capital city of the, the Roman-ruled Macedonia. It lay on the Bay of, of Therm and was and still is a place of um, considerable wealth and commerce. The city was inhabited at this time by, by Greeks, Romans, as well as Jews. And it recognized many types of gods, but particularly Jupiter as the father of Hercules. It had a, a celebrated amphitheater where gladiators used to perform at the amusement of the, the citizens. Um, and it had a circus which was available for different public um, games as well. So the church of the Thessalonians was planted by the apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But of course there was great opposition from the Jews that were living in this city. And they forced Paul to flee to Berea. Um, and as was Paul's custom, he would preach first in the synagogues to try and persuade the Jews first. But the Jews rejected the gospel after it was preached to them three successive Sabbaths. We see in Acts chapter 17, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So the believers here received the word joyfully. Um, despite the, the trials, despite the, the persecutions that, that they were, were facing um, from their own countrymen, from the Jews themselves. And Jason, who's mentioned, um, and others who are mentioned, they, they protected Paul and they protected Silas, and they were punished and persecuted because of that. But despite these persecutions, despite the opposition, God erects a glorious church here. He plants a, a wonderful church in honor of his dear son, in the midst of this very pagan city. And it's worth noticing in verse 1 that this church is said to be in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. This church had fellowship with the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. And it may sound obvious, but it needs to be stated. They were a Christian church because they were established in the knowledge, in the faith, and in the worship, and in the obedience of God the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. 
They believed and accepted the gospel. That is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any church that doesn't believe that is not a church. Any, belie- any church that rejects the gospel is not a biblical church. And the Gentiles among them, of course, we know they had, they had turned to God from their, their idols, their idols which were, which were dumb. They couldn't see, they couldn't hear. And they turned from these idols to serve the living and the true God. And of course, the Jews among them, they believed, they believed Jesus to be the promised Messiah that was spoken about in the Old Testament. So all of these Christians, all of these believers were devoted and dedicated to the glory of God the Father. And they enjoyed a blessed union with Jesus Christ through their, their faith in Him. So straight away we can make a reasonable comparison with the Sardis church. Now Jesus said to them, the Sardis church, that they had a reputation of being alive but the Lord who knows all things considered them to be dead. The Sardis church was not in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says at the end of verse 1 in Thessalonians chapter 1, Grace to you and peace. The Thessalonian church was a church that loved and lived the gospel. There can be no life apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no peace without grace. There is no fellowship with God apart from the gospel. No gospel, no fellowship with God. This church enjoyed sweet communion. They enjoyed the fellowship with God the Father because their faith was in Jesus the Messiah, the Savior. They enjoy direct access to God because of Jesus, their mediator. And that can never be enjoyed. We can never have fellowship with God. We can never have a relationship with God unless our faith is in Jesus Christ. So secondly, we see the expression in verse 2 to 4. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. So this is an expression of thanks. Paul is grateful for their loyalty to the gospel. That's what he's saying here. The apostle says that by their their faith, notice, their love, and their hope, they have proven that they are in fact chosen by God. They are in fact elect by, by God. The faith, love, and patience of the Thessalonians are evident tokens, as fruit of their salvation, which is manifested in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at these three points here mentioned. Well, faith... Number one is the response of the soul to the life-giving Word of God. Let me, let me repeat that. Faith is the response of the soul 
to the life-giving Word of God. So when a person hears the Word of God, they have to respond in one way, isn't it? And those who have faith respond favorably. Those, those are the ones who receive it. Faith is an, is an act of the will in obedience to the Word of God, in obedience to the will of God. And again, let's compare the Sardis church for a moment. Remember, they were reprimanded by our Lord for failing in this very area where the Thessalonian church was flourishing. Jesus says to the Sardis church in Revelation 3 verse 3, Remember then what you have received and and heard. We know that they had heard the gospel. We know that was what was preached to them. But it seems that the Sardis church had forgotten the gospel. And they were not responding in faith as they should have. They had heard the truth of God's word, but it was their response that was the problem. There was no longer an act of obedience to the word and to the will of God. They lacked faith in their response to the word of God. And Paul expresses his gratefulness here to the saints at Thessalonica for their loyalty to the gospel. Because it was displayed in their, in their faith. It was displayed in their response. We can never afford to lose sight of this gospel message. I said that last week. If a church is not responding to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they are not being obedient to Christ. And they are not living as they should. And the good news of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus is the message which every church must constantly be reforming to. We need to preach the message of the gospel to ourselves every single day. And it's easy. It's easy for us to forget this truth. And that is why Paul commands us in 1 Corinthians 11, when we partake of the Lord's table, to remember, to remember, to remember. We ought to remember the gospel. We ought to preach the gospel to ourselves. Because apart from this message... There is no life in the local church. Secondly, we see love. Love is mentioned in verse 3. And Paul gives thanks to God for their their labor of love. Now there's a difference between work and labor. And work describes obviously what is done, what is achieved. But labor refers to the to the process. It refers to the, the doing of it. Remember Christ when he was ministering on the earth. Of course, he had a public ministry of teaching, healing, and seeking the lost. We know that. But the labor involved is what, is what it cost him to accomplish it. And the Bible says in John 4 verse 6 that Jesus was, was wearied. He was tired. Because of his labor. The church at Thessalonica was a good example of, of this labor of love. They knew they were saved in order to serve. They understood their, their purpose. And despite the, the costs, despite the, the time, the sacrifice, despite the efforts that were needed, this church served Joyfully. They didn't serve because they 
they had to, but because they, they loved the Lord, because they wanted to. And the service was not by compulsion, but because of compassion. It was the love of Christ that constrained them. One author said, Where love is the motive, labor is always light. Where love is the motive, labor is always light. I love that. That is, that is a perfect definition. And again, in contrast, when we compare the Sardis church, remember Jesus' words in verse 2, I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. And the emphasis again, remember, was not on their works, but on in the sight of God, before God, as the King James translates it. The church had obviously performed works in Sardis. They had done deeds in the community. But apparently we see their motive was not right. They did it to be seen by men. And there was a problem with their motive. Theirs was not a labor of love. It was simply a labor. It was an exercise. Those in Sardis were serving because they had to, not because they wanted to. They had no desire to please the Lord. Their motive was to please the people around them. And honestly, we probably don't talk enough about motives. A motive simply means the, the reason we do what we do. That's what I mean when I say motives. And motives matter, folks. Motives matter. Now, Proverbs 21 says, All the way of man seem right to him. But the Lord evaluates motives. What if our motives were plastered by God across the, the screen at the back here? wonder what those words would read. What motivates you this morning? What enables you to labor for the, the Lord? That's, that's a question worth asking. What are our motives this morning? Thirdly, we see hope mentioned as well. Hope in verse 3. Steadfastness of hope in the ESV. The KJV, the King James, says patience of hope. It's the same word. It's the same synonym. And the word hope means full assurance. means full guarantee. Not a hope in hope, but a hope in, in something that will come to pass. You know, I hope one day... Well, I used to hope as a little boy one day that I would drive a Ferrari. That's a hope in a hope. Okay, that's not going to happen. I don't, I don't hope that anymore. Okay. Oh, maybe if I come, yeah, there we go. Yeah. So maybe it will happen. <laughs> but a hope in hope is not something that would really take place. We have to have our hope in something that is guaranteed, something that is true, something that is, that is real. And the quality of, of the steadfastness is hope is waiting for, for something to be fulfilled. Waiting for something to be completed in confidence. In confidence that it will come to pass. Now what were they waiting for? Well, we know in verse 10 what they were waiting for. They were waiting for the return of Christ. And there are two ways to wait. Wait and do nothing. Or patiently wait while faithfully Serving. And that's what this church did. 
They were patiently waiting while faithfully serving. Patience is translated in other passages as endurance. It means not being idle. It means to continue doing what is, what is right. And again, let's compare that to the Sardis church. The Sardis church was not patiently waiting while faithfully serving. They were doing absolutely the opposite. They were asleep. They were in a, in a coma, remember? And they were commanded by God to wake up. They were not serving and waiting and patiently enduring. In Luke 19, verse 13, Jesus said in a parable, Occupy till I come. The ESV, it says, Engage in business until I come. And this parable is like that of the, the talents in Matthew 25. Those that are called to Christ, he, he blesses with gifts that, that are needed in order to serve. And from those to whom he gives, he expects service. That means his will for us is that we continue to do what he has left us here to do until he returns. And that is patience of hope. Remember the parable. The one servant was given five talents and he brought back another five talents. One was given two and he brought back another two. One was given one and he buried it in the ground. He was unfaithful. He didn't have a right view of his master. And he thought badly of his master and he hid it in the ground. His master returned and, and scolded him. And the message there is, occupy till I come. Engage in business until I come. Do the work of the ministry that I've commanded you. Do the work of the ministry that I've saved you for. The very reason you've been born again. You know, John Calvin, he, he calls verse 3 a brief definition of true Christianity. Think about that. Faith, love, and hope are active. That's what a Christian should be defined as. Now, faith looks to God and what He has done for us, for our sins. And love looks to others and what we must do for them right now, what we're obliged to do. And hope looks to the future, which will be glorious. Faith, faith looks to the future, which will be glorious. You know, faith, love, and, and hope are, are productive. These are things that are active. They're not, they're not dead. They are productive. We know faith produces good works as a result of our obedience. You now, love produces a commitment to practically show others that we love God. It's demonstrated in our, in our works, in our, in our actions. And hope produces endurance, endurance to the end. Because we know this world is, is not our home. We look towards that eternal city where we are citizens of. And we look forward to that. And we know the glorious and eternal future that wait, awaits us. We know this is temporary. We know the struggles of this world are temporary. We look forward to that place in heaven where, where everything will be perfect. Verse 3 is a, is a challenge to us. It's a great challenge to us. You know, if a so-called Christian is not working out his or her, her faith obediently, we can then legitimately ask, where is their faith? Is there faith? If a so-called Christian is not laboring 
in loving and serving others, we can reasonably ask, where's your love? Is there love? The so-called Christian is not enduring tough times. He's not able to go through these trials and suffering. And we can come alongside him and ask him, where is your hope? Is your hope in a person? Is your hope in your, your job? Is your hope in your education? Is your hope in your bank account? Or is your hope in Jesus Christ? A model church is an active church. Active in our faith. Active in our love. Active in our hope. Our third point. Notice the reminder of the gospel. We see that in verse 5 as well as in verse 6. And he reminds them of the manner in which they received the gospel when it was first preached to them. And the manner is the power, the power that was behind the gospel. How it had manifested among them in a very tangible, in a very remarkable way. They had embraced the gospel. And though in the midst of these trials that they faced, remember they were in a pagan culture. They were in a culture that, that loved their idols, like, loved their Greek gods. Despite their afflictions they faced, they received the word with joy, it says. Again, remember the Sardis church. Now they seemed to let the word of God go in one ear and out of the other ear. There wasn't much joy when they received the word of God. They were just going through the motions. But the Thessalonican church here, they were not just hearers. They were doers of the word. Paul says in verse 5, The gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And Paul's words had a powerful effect on them. The Holy Spirit is the person the power came from as the gospel was preached. There was life. Full conviction. Those are the words that are used. Full conviction is evidence of the, the power of the Holy Spirit. The word for full conviction means entire confidence. It means passion. In other words, as Paul preached with entire confidence, the gospel the message was received loud and clear with a passion. Let's apply that to those among us here who teach the word, you know, in our church, in our, in our home groups, or on Friday at the children's church, and to those of us who try to share the gospel with our families and friends and our neighbors and our, and our colleagues I mean, ask yourself this question. Do we share the Word of God with a full conviction that it has the power to save? That it has the power to change? I mean, let's pray for each other that, that this will be true of us. That our confidence will be in the gospel to change people's lives. Let's not be weary of, of well-doing. And finally, we see the, the effect of the gospel in verse 7 to 10, where we, I want to spend the rest of our time. The effect of the gospel, of course, was the birth of a healthy local church. A church that had an active, 
and a living faith. The hope of the Thessalonian church had been felt abroad, far and wide. We see in verse 7, they had become examples to those that lived in Macedonia as well as in Achaia. But verse 8 says, not only did the word of the Lord sound forth from them in Macedonia and Achaia, but it had gone forth everywhere. It had gone forth across their borders, abroad, across the seas, internationally. And from them, the gospel had been spread throughout Greece. And then it had gone even further. And one commentator said that Macedonia and Achaia were the two provinces into which all Greece was divided when it was brought under the Roman rule. And the meaning here is therefore that their influence was felt on all parts of Greece. The effect of their conversion had been felt in all of these places, including abroad. You know, remember the Thessalonica church was a Thessalonica was a was a commercial city. It had a seaport and a, and a bustling trade market. It had contact with all other parts of Macedonia and all other parts of Greece and all other parts of Asia Minor. It was, of course, owing to this unique situation that the gospel was able to spread so, so easily. And this is a, a point I want to park for a moment. I mean, this is a very relevant point that we as, as expats should be able to relate to, especially living here in the, the UAE. Listen to the same commentator. He says, It is impossible to overestimate the importance of such places in regard to the spread of the gospel. And Christians who reside there, be they merchants, mechanics, lawyers, physicians, mariners, or ministers of the gospel, should feel that on them God has placed the responsibility of using a vast influence in sending the gospel to other lands. The Thessalonian church was strategically placed that through their available networks and seaports and trade routes, in this commercial town, and because of their willingness to serve the Lord in obedience, that the gospel was so easily spread throughout the land, throughout the, 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 the seas. The Thessalonian Christians, they were merchants, they were marinas, they were traders, but they went abroad and carried with them the gospel message. And those who visited them from different places of the world visited their church and they would hear about the gospel. And their lives were changed. The effect of the gospel was upon them as they went out back to their lands. You know, New Life Church, we, we have heard over and over again from this pulpit that the reason God has brought us together as a church here in this land is no coincidence. We are all here because of our job situations. What a wonderful opportunity the Lord has, has given to us as a church. What if His purpose for us as a church in such a commercial center like Abu Dhabi with easily accessible travel routes to all over the world was for us to be like the Thessalonian church? What if God is calling us to be a missionary sending church 
to countries all over the world. Wouldn't that be exciting? It would be right. It should be that we feel this responsibility God has placed on us to use our vast influence, as the commentator says, and our networks to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, the word of the Lord sounded forth from them. The truths of the gospel had spread abroad. And the word translated sounded forth is a, is a wonderful word, a wonderful picture that is painted for us here by the, by the writer. The word sounded forth refers to the, the sounding of a trumpet. And the idea is that the gospel was proclaimed like a, like a booming voice that, that echoed like a trumpet from place to place. And this was the reputation of the Thessalonian church. The influence had a, an effect in disseminating the gospel in all regions of the world. Just like the, the trumpet echoed and, and re-echoed and vibrated amongst the hills all through the valleys of Greece. And notice in the last part of verse 9, this church, the people here had turned to God from idols. They turned to God from idols. And that really is the work of faith. That's the work of faith. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. To serve the living and true God. That's a labor of love. They were serving the real God. And then we see to wait for his son from heaven. That's the steadfastness of hope. That's the steadfastness of hope. We see that here characteristic of this church. They had turned from idols to worship the true and living God. And this is where I want to conclude my message this morning. You know, the Thessalonian church is a model, really, for us to follow. Simply because they understood the gospel and because they understood the demands of the gospel. Verse, says, verse 9 says they turned from idols. Now, definition of idol, let me read here, is a pagan god or an object of excessive devotion or admiration. So the definition of idol is a pagan god or an object of excessive devotion or admiration. In other words, whatever we love, whatever we serve, and whatever we depend on more than God is an idol. It's an object of false worship. It's an object of devotion. It's something that comes first in our lives before God. And Matthew Henry, he gives a definition. And he says, Pride makes a God of self. Covetousness makes a God of money. Sensuality makes a God of the belly. Whatever is esteemed, whatever is loved, whatever is feared, whatever is served, or whatever is delighted in or depended on more than God, whatever it is, we do, in effect, make a God of. We do well to remember the very first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, where the Lord God says to us, 
thou shalt have no other gods before me. Jehovah is to be our object of worship. If we put anything in the place of God, we break this first commandment. God must be our only object of worship. There is no place for any other. God is a a jealous God. He will not share His glory with any other. We cannot love the God of the gospel if we are serving idols. What? Are there any idols in your life that are preventing you from serving God faithfully? Are there any idols in your life that you are depending on more than than God himself? What about your job? Is that an idol? What about sports? Is that an idol? What about your health? Is that an idol? What about food? What about your family? What about your wife? What about your husband? Are they idols? Your children? What about cars? What about your clothes? What about sex? Do you turn to that for your satisfaction? Do you spend more time devoted to to TV? What about your education? What about traditions? You add in the blanks there. Is there anything there that you are esteeming? or loving more, or fearing more, or serving more, depending on more than God. That has become an idol. Verse 9 says we need to turn from these idols to serve the living and true God. Now He is called the living God because He's not an idol. He's not dumb. He's not dead. He's, he's alive. Idols are dumb. Idols are, are deaf. Idols are are blind and they are unable to answer our prayers. Perhaps they can give us a momentary peace and a momentary satisfaction, but they cannot provide us with eternal peace. They cannot provide us with eternal comfort that comes only from serving the true and living God. There's an interesting word there in verse 9. Serve. That word comes from the word doulos, the Greek word doulos. And the word there actually means to be a slave. To be a slave. We are in bondage. We are slaves. And I alluded to this a little bit in the, in the home group study. What is the difference between a, a servant and a, and a slave? Well, there is a difference. A servant works for a master, but gets a payment. He gets a salary, doesn't he? But a slave is owned by the master. He doesn't get a a wage. He belongs to the master. The Bible is concerned to call us back from idolatry, so that we will serve our master, that we will serve the true and living God. But of course, it's also concerned... That we serve the true God, the living God, in the, in the right way, not the wrong way. Perhaps people have been confused by this word that's been translated as serve. Now, we don't serve God for five hours on a, on a Friday, or two hours on a Friday, and then it's our time. We don't clock in and clock out when it comes to serving the, the true and living God. We belong to Him. God is 
not a scout looking for the best player to help his team win. He has already won. He doesn't need a, a partner. He's looking for servants. The call to Christian service is not a, a help-wanted advertisement. Psalm 50, verse 9 and 10 says, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle upon a thousand hills, I know all the fowl of the mountains, and the roaming creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. We have a wrong view of God when we think that, that He's going to be our beneficiary. We have the wrong view of what it means to submit to the Lordship of Christ if we think that the Lord is a vending machine where we pray a prayer, where we put in a coin and out springs a, a blessing. He is not our partner. He is our master. He is the true and living God who we serve Joyfully. Paul informs us that God cannot be served in a way that implies we are meeting his needs. Listen to what Paul listen to the writer of Acts in, in 17. The God that made the world and all things therein, he being Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by men's hands as though he needed anything. Seeing he himself gives all life and breath and all things. Now all other so-called gods makes man work for them. And our God will not be put in the position of an employer who must depend on others to make his business flourish. God is sovereign. He owns everything. He doesn't need us. But still, he calls us to serve him. He magnifies his all-sufficiency by doing the work all himself. We are dependent on him. Our job is to wait for the Lord. And the only way to serve God is by the power that he supplies. Just like the Thessalonian church. They were filled with power because of the Holy Spirit. Not because of their Efforts, not because of their flesh, not because of their talents. If the power comes from the Spirit of God, then God gets all the glory. We don't rob God of the glory. Of course, this means obedience. We cannot worship God without this obedience. Just as we learned today, there cannot be obedience to the will and the Word of God if there is no faith. Think of a patient and a doctor relationship. A patient obeys his doctor even though he doesn't know everything. A patient obeys his doctor hoping that he will get better. The patient needs to trust the doctor. He needs to trust that the treatment is right in order for him to, to get better. In the same way, we benefit from what the divine physician has to offer us. John Piper once said, in all obedience, we are the beneficiaries. God is ever the giver, for it is the giver who gets the glory. 
John 15, verse 7 and 8, Jesus said, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. Let me finish with an illustration this morning. Um, I read a story about a missions director who once met with the mother of one of his agency's missionaries. And he spent some time getting to know this mother. And she prepared tea for the director in her, in her, in her lounge. And as they drank tea, she explained to him the difficulty of having a daughter on the mission field in China. And her son was a missionary in Sudan. She loved her children, of course, and she missed them dearly. But as she explained, her love for God allowed her to let them follow His will for their lives. And the mother went on to describe the burden her son had for the Sudanese people. And her relay of his description of the, the people brought her to tears while she was talking to the director. And the missions director left her house with a a deeper appreciation for the parents of missionaries and a greater burden for the country of Sudan. But a few months later, the missions director got word that a missionary in Sudan had been killed. And it was the, the Scottish lady's son. And feeling he should be the one to break the news to her, he once again visited the mother in her home. And after telling her the tragic news, the mother looked down. And in a few moments of composure, this is what she said. Sir, I would rather have my son die in the middle of Sudan alone than to have him living here with me, disobeying God's will. I would rather have him living here with me Sorry, I would rather have him living. Sorry, I messed it up. I would rather have my son die in the middle of Sudan alone than to have him living here with me, disobeying God's will. Church, let us never be guilty of being a church that is following our will. My prayer for New Life Church is that we would be known as a living church as the New Life Church. The church that is actively obeying. The church that is working hard for our Master's glory in all things. And never forgetting that it is God who works in us. It is God who works in us, the will and the deed. Let us be spreading the gospel wherever we have the opportunities, far and wide, like the church in Thessalonica. And never speak of anything else except, the, except of the gospel of what Christ has done in us. Let God get the glory in all our efforts. You know, in many ways, the Thessalonian church is a model for us to follow. In many ways. Because they model themselves on, on Jesus. And that may intimidate some of us. And we could say, whoa, you know, 
that's not for me. I, I'm just here to, to be at church. <laughs> don't, don't ask me to do anything else. Or, we could be the other kind of Christian that says, what Christ can do in them, he can do in me. And what Christ can do in the Thessalonian church, he can do in us for his glory. May we be like the Thessalonian church, the church that is living, the church that is active, the church that in no way is dead. For the glory of God, let us pray. Father, this morning we want to once again thank you for the gospel. We want to thank you for those that shared the gospel with us while we were dead in our sins. We want to thank you for the Holy Spirit that took that word and watered it and brought it to life. Thank you for those, Lord, who encouraged us in the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel that bore its fruit in our lives. It took us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Father, we see clearly here, Lord, from the example of the Thessalonian church that we have, we have a duty to fulfill. We have been saved in order to serve. We have a faith, Lord, that is not dead because our faith is in a God that is alive. A God that is coming again. And a God who will hold us accountable. Thank you, Lord, for the living faith that you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to be more active in the way we display our faith. In the love, Lord, that we need to have for the lost around us. For those that are dying in their sins. For those who were once like us, slaves to their sin. Lord, help us, Lord, to be responsive this morning. Help us to be willing to imitate you. Lord, help us, Lord, to spread your word. Help us to be a model of Christ, that others may see the hope that is living inside of us, that we may give a, a reasonable answer when they ask us, Lord. Pray, Lord, that our lives would matter for your glory that we would be able to make a difference, Lord, in this land that you've placed us. One opportunity we have, Father, you've brought us together, Lord, not just so that we can earn money, you have brought us together to serve you. You have brought us together to honor you. You have brought us together to glorify your name. May we be a church that does that, Lord, with every opportunity we have. May we not be intimidated by the world around us. May we not be living in fear, Believing the lies of the devil. Lord, may we boldly proclaim you wherever you place us. We all have different opportunities, Lord, with the, with the, with the, the place where we work, the different opportunities where the neighbors amongst us, where we live. May we use these opportunities for your glory, Lord. May we be a church that is faithful and active in our love, and in our hope. We pray this prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen.